Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining Law Matters. On the phone, we have Marine retired Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer, who's going to give us an update on what's going on with Ukraine. It seems to be changing minute by minute. Good morning, Sherry. Yeah, it's been a busy week. Let's just put it that way. A lot going on. So what do we need to know, and, and what can we do to help, if anything? Well, uh, basically, uh, on the ground there, uh, as, as you know, the Russians have shifted their uh, focus of effort more towards the east. They're just not making much progress. The Ukrainians are seem to be holding the line. Uh, the Ukrainians are actually doing very well. Uh, the weapons that the U.S. has pledged are, are getting in there. The Ukrainians are getting trained. They're, they're putting them into action pretty fast. And the Russians just aren't making much, uh, much headway. Now, if you go down south to Mariupol, which has been in the news, I don't know if they're ever going to get them out of that, that, uh, that shelter, that bunker, if you will, underneath the steel plant. Uh, they've been trying to negotiate something to get the civilians out of there. They're trying to negotiate something to get their, the soldiers out of there and the Marines, uh, the Ukrainian soldiers and Marines. I don't know if that will ever happen. Uh, my sense is that if they surface, they will be uh, basically taken prisoner by the Russians. And the Russians, there were reports this week that the Russians have been executing prisoners. <gasps> so so that, that has been happening. So I'm sure that's very much in the minds of the commanders of those units there. And yeah. there's, there's still, a, uh, there's about 100,000 civilians trapped in Mariupol, which is stunning when you look at the destruction that has occurred in Mariupol. So uh, <laughs> just a, a lot of things are on the front. And of course, you know, the UN Secretary General, um, went to uh, Kiev, met with uh, President Zelensky this week. Of course, the day he goes to Kiev, the Russians decide to shoot cruise missiles into uh, Kiev yeah. to kind of accentuate their uh, bombastic behavior that they showed the UN Secretary General in Moscow. And uh, frankly, if Putin's plan was to irritate the United Nations, he's doing a heck of a job. So, what's yeah. going on? I don't see an end coming anytime soon, do you? Uh, no. Uh, I, the big day to watch for is May 9th. Yeah. That's World War II Victory Day uh, for, the, for the Russians. Uh, it, they, they announced last week that they were, they were going to have a, of course, they're going to do the May 9th parade in Moscow, Red Square, but they announced that they were going to do a uh, parade in Mariupol which really a bit of a head-scratcher because Mariupol looks a lot like Stalingrad, World War II. There's just not a lot standing. Um, now the speculation coming out today is that Putin may try to expand the conflict. He may say this is a fight against the West or a fight against NATO. So everybody's watching his rhetoric, which has been very bombastic. Uh, he raised the specter of nuclear war or using nuclear weapons again this last week, which got a lot of people focused. Um, I will say that uh, the the administration, the U.S. administration, the Biden administration doesn't really react to this, which is probably the best thing to do is not to react or overreact to it, because a lot of times he throws out this rhetoric, but when you actually look at what they're doing with nuclear weapons, it doesn't match up. It's just the rhetoric's out there, but but not much is happening in terms of substantive changes. I read a report, and somebody was, I don't know if they were just thinking about, you know, his body language that they thought maybe he was ill. Do you think that he, there's anything to it? I think there's a lot to it. Uh, before the invasion, he met with, uh, some months back, met with President Lukashenko of uh Belarus. And uh, it was a staged event, but his his uh, right hand was shaking and he could barely walk. It, it, you know, and there was a lot of speculation that he might have Parkinson's. There's been numerous reports that he is, that he has ear, nose and throat uh, doctors that follow him around, that he may be, they may be under treatment for thyroid cancer. If you look at his meeting with, uh, with the UN Secretary General earlier this week, uh, he just he didn't look well. He was having trouble standing and walking. And when he met with uh, Shoigu, his defense minister, uh, which that was an interesting meeting because you may recall a few weeks weeks ago 
they had announced that he had a massive heart attack, not from natural causes, which was a rather interesting turn of phrase. Well, apparently he's back in action. He met with uh, Putin, but Putin was slouched. His voice was very soft. His foot was uh, shaking uncontrollably, and he had kind of a death grip on the desk. All of this indicates, you know, if you look at these videos, and you got to remember, these are staged events. When you look at these things, it's, there's whatever's going on there. It's too much to hide. Uh, he's got some. He's got some health issues. And somebody else asked me, "What about his family? Where Where is his family? He's got, I think, an ex-wife and and two daughters and a girlfriend. And I don't know if he has kids with the girlfriend, but where are they during all this? Well, uh, I think they. I think they all went back to Russia last time I checked. His daughters were living in Switzerland. But I think everybody has gone back to Russia. Uh, I I don't know about the daughters or the ex-wife where they're physically located. Although there were stories that the the girlfriend and reportedly a son I think they have uh, might actually be holding up in a nuclear nuclear bunker. Uh, uh, that was something that that was weeks ago that came out. I don't know if they've ever left that bunker. Uh, but when uh, the, when the war started, there was talk that he had put his his girlfriend and uh, and their their kid in this uh, you know not fallout shelter but actually nuclear blast shelter complex. Wow! To protect them, yeah, that was that was something that got everybody's attention. So. <laughs> He's getting everybody's attention for sure. So. What can what can we do to to prepare? Or should you know what's going on? I've I've heard on reports that you know people are saying the West needs to prepare for war for a war. I'm like, where have I, you been? It's kind of been a war for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know what we can do here to prepare. Um, I'm not expecting to see Russian tanks rolling into uh, into southern Arizona anytime soon. Um, they're having a tough time just rolling into uh, the Donbass region. Okay. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense Austin, used some, you know, he and uh, Secretary Blinken, Secretary of State, went to Kiev last weekend. Um, fairly big deal. Uh, they, they got in there by train, got out of there by train. Interestingly, as they were getting out of there by train, uh, Putin uh, decided to uh, send cruise missiles hitting the rail rail line. Uh, ostensibly the rail line that they were using, although they were they were past it by the time that he hit the tracks, but it was a little message there. Yeah, no uh, kidding. But but Austin used some interesting language and, and you've heard this language consistently this week that, that there seems to be a shift in 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 US strategic goals here. Uh, he said that uh, he wants he wants to see Russia weakened so that it can't you know, repeat what it's done to Ukraine, threaten its neighbors like that. And that's interesting language. Uh, it's not not the language I would have expected. Usually we say we want to eliminate their ability to threaten their neighbors, a little bit more plain spoken. Right. Uh, but he used the term weakened, which was kind of an interesting term. But what? It, but basically, if you look at that, and then you look at the $30 billion uh, uh, bill or, or, you know, that uh, President Biden just proposed yesterday with $20 billion of that going for military aid. That shows a huge, uh, a very substantial uh, contribution by the U.S. and a commitment to Ukraine. And basically what you're seeing is that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians defeated the Russians north of Kiev. Uh, it looks like they may be aiming at the destruction of Russian forces in the east and the south over time. And if you look at the numbers of tanks destroyed, over a thousand tanks, according to the Ukrainians, Russian tanks have been destroyed. Twenty five hundred armored personnel carriers, over twenty three thousand Russian soldiers killed in action. Uh, these are enormous numbers, and uh, Russia can't sustain this over time. But it may be that they're going to basically decimate their conventional forces, which will physically prevent them from doing something like this again. Of course, the other side of that is you got two fronts. You got the front in Ukraine, and then you got the front in Moscow. And I think uh, Putin is getting much more nervous about the support at home and whether there's a threat to him personally and to his regime. 
Um, that he should be worried. Time. He should be worried. Uh, he, he should be. Well, he just put he just put the uh, uh, Gerasimov, the uh, the the most senior Army general, uh, the Army Armed Forces Chief of Staff. He just sent him to Ukraine to take charge of the Eastern Front. Now, interesting, a couple weeks ago, he put Gornikov, a general that was already over there, in charge of the entire Ukrainian operation for the first time, putting a singular general in charge of Ukraine. Well, now he sent a more senior general to take charge of the main effort. And whereas they haven't announced that Gornikov has been relieved or demoted or whatever, I, I just don't know how you can send a more senior general and say take over the most important part of this whole operation without that general kind of taking hold. The interesting thing about Gerasimov, this is who briefs or was briefing Putin every single day. And so what a uh, number of experts are saying is it looks like Putin is taking direct control uh, or taking a higher degree of control of, of all the military actions on the ground. Now, with that said, he's not a military guy. Right. He's an intelligence guy. And uh, and and actually, that may work out to the Ukrainians' benefit. You know, if you go back to World War II, when Hitler decided to overrule the German general staff time and again, that that was actually a, a very beneficial thing for the Allies, because Hitler would do really stupid stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think we're at... Putin's you know, doing it, too. Doing, <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So it, it, it may actually be a, a kind of an odd gift, if you will, to the Ukrainians in this in this whole battle or this whole campaign. So, well, I appreciate you coming on and, and bringing us up to date. I know so much is going on, and it's it's like every day and a new story. Um, you stay safe and do your homework. We want to hear from you again <laughs> because you know what you're reading. We can read it and not get the inside scoop on you know what we're reading, but you can read between the lines and let us know what's happening. Well, yeah. well, Sherry, thanks for having me on, and uh, always a pleasure. Okay. And, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to run out of things to talk about with this war. It's going to go on for a while. Yeah, I have that feeling. I have that feeling. Yep. Thank you. You have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, you too, Sherry. Take care. Okay, take care. And we have Rich Tracy in the studio. Good He's morning. He's got some announcements to make. Yes, I'd like to let everybody know that today is uh, DEA Arizona's 22nd National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day. Uh, they do this biannually. Last October when they did it, uh, residents of Arizona uh, turned in over 9,000 pounds or four and a half tons of solid forms of prescription drugs. They won't take liquids and syringes uh, and other sharps, and, and they won't take illegal drugs either. But if your medicine cabinet has a bunch of... Uh, no, no old, come on, bring your illegal drugs. Yeah, well, I'm just, that, that's what it says here. I'm just reading what it says, uh, which I, I would assume that would be obvious to the public here. but uh, Not necessarily. So... Uh, so they, it's from 10 to 2 today, uh, and there are 4,000 drop-off locations nationwide. And I will tell you that I will be at the Walgreens on the northwest corner of Sunrise and Swan. That's 4655 East Sunrise uh, from 12 to 2 uh, with 88 Crime helping support that effort. So so if you want an autograph for Brits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to scare people away either, which is more than likely what's going to happen. But uh, <laughs> but uh, if you if you if you have things in your medicine cabinet that you know you don't need, that you know they never recommend flushing them down the toilet yeah. or disposing of them in the garbage or anything like that, this is a way to to safely drop off those old drugs, no questions asked. And um, unless and they're, they're illegal, well, yeah, unless they're illegal and be disposed of properly. So that's <laughs> uh, that's that. Okay, we have a special guest today. I'd like you to introduce him. Well, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin to. Um, I know I printed that out. I was like, <laughs> I need a ream of paper <laughs> to uh, to introduce our guest this morning. But uh, other than to say that that he's a a very impressive individual who has done a lot, not only for law enforcement here in Arizona, but for these survivors of law enforcement officers killed and injured in the line of duty throughout the country. And I think the best way to, uh, to introduce uh, Jim Werner is just to go ahead and start asking him questions and let, let it naturally come out and uh, get into his career and what he's done, particularly for 
the COPS organization, and National Police Week. So good morning, Jim. How are you, sir? Good morning, Rich. How are you guys? Uh, it's a pleasure to be on uh, your show this morning. No, oh, thank you for joining us. I was I was telling him I was reading your resume, and then, you know, it's like a ream of paper. You've done so much. Tell everybody what the acronym COPS stands for. Uh, COPS stands for the Concerns of Police Survivors. And how did you get involved? Well, you know, with my career at the Arizona Department of Public Safety, I, I was on our investigative team uh, investigating line-of-duty death investigations and officer injuries. And in 1995, my uh, uh, one of my lieutenants, um, uh, I was also involved in starting our peer uh, support program. Uh, one of my lieutenants, uh, Lieutenant Mark Brown, said it was time for me to go back to uh, Washington, D.C. and attend National Police Week. And so in 95, I went back, and uh, I didn't understand why, uh, other than, to, you know, it's something I always wanted to do uh, because of all the names on the wall and see the memorial. But it, what I found out, especially when he asked that I had to go to one of the coworkers' uh, seminars, you know, I was going, you know, I, I'm doing well, I, I'm okay. But once I got into that room with the, the group of, and we started sharing our stories, I realized that I was, uh, you know, dealing with some uh, some of the issues of dealing with trauma on an everyday basis. And it was from that point on that uh, I returned the next year in '96 and uh, joined uh, their support services team, which uh, is made up of uh, peer support members and mental health providers. And uh, we uh, offer um, and uh, lead seminars uh, with all the different uh, groups that attend National Police Week. Uh, so I've been going back since 1995. That's, a, that's quite a while. That's quite a while. Rich? And, and that's where I met Rich. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I started. I started going to Police Week in two thousand and six, and did it up through uh, my retirement. And I, I, I had met Jim prior when he was uh, with DPS, and then with. Did he pull you over and give the, you a no, ticket? No, no, he he never he never did, <laughs> he never did. And also, he was no. very helpful. I, I think we want to back up a little bit, Jim, and just kind of get into your law enforcement career as well, because again, you've you've done so much for. The people in the state that I think uh, forty-two years, yeah, yeah, it's quite quite a number of years. So, why don't you start out with your days as a as a young trooper and kind of take us through your career, if you don't mind, up through when you no. when you finally retired uh, last year, as I recall. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have time to cover all that. <laughs> I know that's why I told him I said I printed this out, but if he expects us to read it, we don't have time on the show. <laughs> no. Uh, well, I. I I actually started out in the fire service. I was working for Davis Month and uh, as a civilian employee out at their fire department, the Air Force Base there in uh, Tucson. And uh, I uh, happened to run into the Ranger crew, uh, the uh, helicopter crew that works for DPS and provides support. And uh, they started recruiting me. Uh, I was going through my uh, paramedic program at the time. And uh, uh, they recruited me, and after a couple different tries in 1979, I was hired on uh, DPS and uh, uh, made it through the academy. Uh, it's kind of a standing joke with me. It took me two tries. Uh, the first week in the first academy, I ruptured two discs and uh, ended up spending a couple weeks in the hospital and eventually had surgery and had them replaced. But I came back in uh, June of that same year and started the academy and finished in uh, uh, late November of 79. And uh, my first duty assignment was up in Boulder City patrolling from Hoover Dam down to almost Kingman. Uh, and, you know, had a fun time up there learning my job. And uh, it, about two years later, I transferred back down to Tucson, where I really spent the majority of my career. Uh, I spent an additional about two years on uh, patrolling the freeways there in the, the uh, Tucson area, and then I was asked to uh, uh, move into the Criminal Investigations uh, uh, Bureau, and um, that's where I spent the majority of my career uh, working in uh, 
uh, started out in the old what used to be known in the 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 old island. It was investigations and liquor enforcement. But my primary areas uh, was uh, doing detectives for the investigation for other smaller agencies throughout the the southern part of the state. Uh, I then went into intelligence, where I worked uh, the traditional organized crime for about two or three years, uh, and uh, then I went into when the uh, street gang started. I started working a little bit of that with uh, the the agencies there in the valley, and and uh, then I decided that maybe it was time to promote, and so I promoted, and uh, my first duty assignment was Wickenburg, and. Uh, uh, that lasted not the three years I was hoping. Uh, I remember getting a call uh, from uh, the colonel uh, from uh, criminal investigation saying he wanted to see me, and I came up and I was transferred to uh, training to finish a project, which really uh, impacted law enforcement nationwide and probably worldwide in some aspects. Uh, we had noticed in the investigations, because I served on our shooting team, as I mentioned, too, that we were seeing a lot of uh, uh, shooting investigations that we couldn't explain, and so uh, we were doing. We were asked to do a study after one of our incidents up here in West Valley of Phoenix, or one of our officers uh, unintentionally, uh, after a large pursuit, uh, uh, shot and then killed a young man. And after uh, we went to trial and everything on that, we were ordered to do a study to find out what the heck was going on in law enforcement. So I worked with a doctor in Noka. Uh, the agency did work with uh, Dr. Anoka out of the University of Arizona on what they call the inner limb interaction study, uh, which we found out that when uh, you're under stress, your uh, limbs react the same way. So when, uh, and that's where uh, now uh, it's taught in all the academies across the nation and and. and, and that you, uh, when you pull your weapon, you keep your finger alongside the trigger, uh, alongside the frame, and not on the trigger. Because what we, what we determined was happening when they were under stress, when they had reached to maybe put handcuffs on or reaching for car doors, and they had a weapon in their hand and their finger was on the trigger, the guns were act- were actually uh, when you went to squeeze your, say, your left hand, uh, and you had a weapon in your hand, your, your right hand, the guns were going off. So we produced that study, and, you know, I did some traveling, doing courtroom testimony, and we published an actual uh, manual on it, and it's now being still used throughout the world. Uh, that was what I feel one of my biggest accomplishments. Uh, and then I started getting very involved in uh, the peer support program because I started realizing the importance of uh, taking care of uh, officers, as, you know, it used to be known, well known in the, the career field that, you know, yeah, when you in those areas, when you got involved in incidences and you saw the stuff that we see every single day, that uh, we just uh, have to suck it up and move on to the next one. Well, working, uh, and that's where I got the opportunity to meet uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. And I uh, started work with him a little bit on uh, developing peer programs there and the the southern part of the states and then uh, eventually throughout uh, i continue to work with peer teams throughout the the uh arizona and the country uh, uh but my career went on i came uh eventually uh moved back in where i commanded the special investigations unit as a sergeant and then uh, eventually i was also the commander of it uh, so i've seen in my career uh, I've lost uh, two partners, uh, two very close friends, and uh, I investigated uh, 19 different uh, line-of-duty deaths for the Department of Public Safety uh, throughout my career. Uh, and one of my partners was one that helped recruit me to DPS, Officer Ed Rebel, who was shot and killed. Uh, his end of watch date was June 28, 1988. Uh, and that was probably one of the toughest investigations I had, uh, uh, just knowing that. Uh, and uh, so I just continued to, you know, continue to work in that field. I eventually went back and uh, and got my degree in uh, counseling, and so I'm also a licensed counselor, and I, I do exclusive work with public safety families, and uh, I continue to work with uh, concerns of police survivors back in uh, when uh, during National Police Week every year, and uh, it's just. Uh, the friends that we've made throughout the years, Rich can attest to that, uh, and working with the groups that we go back with and uh, uh, work with has just been so special. And, uh, you know, that's what drives me to go back uh, continuing. 
but I finished up my career with DPS uh, in uh, June of uh, uh, 06 or uh, 09 and took a couple years off. Well, not really took years off. I was doing training for uh, dispatchers on wellness, uh, mental wellness for them and emotional survival for them uh, throughout the state working for uh, some of the insurance pools. And then uh, the Department of Transportation uh, decided uh, and formed a uh, uniform unit along with uh, what they used to have as Office of uh, Special Investigations. Well, they wanted to turn it into Inspector General's office, so uh, I came on board with them and was the commander of uh, four squads that did uh, identity theft and uh, the different type of fraud cases throughout uh, uh, the the Department of Transportation. And then I retired uh, April of uh, last year, and uh, as one of the doctors that I continue to work with very closely uh, tells me, I'm flunking uh, retirement miserably. (laughs) It sounds like it. (laughs) You're very busy. So Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, cops. Yes. And you say that it's uh, concerns of police survivors. Are you talking, uh, you know, obviously somebody gets shot on duty, but are you talking about when a policeman is involved with a shooting as well? Because, like, we were talking on the phone, we were talking about that situation with the young man who was wrestling law enforcement to the ground and ended up getting shot. Is he somebody who would be acknowledged or... Uh, gain any type of benefit from joining those concerns for police survivors? Uh, The concerns of police survivors focuses on the officers' families only and their coworkers is where their focus is. Uh, And, uh, I mean, they take care of, when I say the the officer's family, we take care of the entire family from the kids to the surviving spouses, um, uh, fiancé, significant others, parents, grandparents, uh, adult children. I mean, we break it down into all those little groups, and that's our focus is to take care of them in those uh, after they've lost an officer uh, serving their communities. Okay, the... Arizona chapter, where is it located? Our Arizona chapter, we we actually cover all of Arizona. Our uh, headquarters or our office is here in the Phoenix area. Uh, We have a a small little office that... we uh, work out of, uh, I mean, we're not, we don't man it every single day, but uh, one of the board members will go down there and, you know, uh, meet with people or uh, we hold our monthly meetings uh, uh, there as well. Uh, but uh, we have uh, uh, board members uh, throughout the state. In fact, one, uh, one of our board members lives down there in the Marana area. Uh, and uh, then... Uh, We have them, uh, the the biggest majority are up here in the Phoenix metro area, but we're trying to expand that. We're bringing on some of our newer uh, uh, board members uh, to get them uh, to be able to take over the chapter as well. So, Jim, uh, why don't we uh, take a break, and then after the break, let's uh, walk the audience through what happens from the time an officer is unfortunately killed in the line of duty in Arizona and then through their families' uh, uh, travel to Police Week and the events of Police Week, because that's coming up here pretty soon. So we'll take a break, and then when we come back, we'll let you walk us through that. How's that sound? All right. That sounds great. All right. Perfect. We'll be right back. All right. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, we have on the phone with us this morning Jim Wariner, who is uh, the president of the Arizona Concerns of Police Survivors Chapter, uh, with a long, distinguished career in law enforcement here in Arizona. So uh, uh, right before the break, we were talking about what COPS does. So what I'd like to do in order to maybe put it in perspective for the listeners uh, is why don't you kind of take a few minutes and walk us through what happens from, you know, again, the unfortunate incident of a of a law enforcement officer being killed in the line of duty. Of course, we uh, we know you wouldn't discuss specific cases. So just in a 
general perspective, uh, what happens and what does COPS do uh, from the moment that an officer is killed in the line of duty? And we'll walk through uh, National Police Week with that family. Okay. Um, generally, uh, just because of, uh, you know, we stay in contact and we go out and do uh, speaking engagements with uh, many of the different agencies throughout the state of Arizona. But usually we'll get a telephone call from uh, one of our contacts in one of those agencies or, you know, uh, a lot of us, uh, I know myself, uh, you know, I, I get uh, text alerts when an officer is killed in the line of duty. And uh, we'll immediately reach out to uh, one of their uh, command staff members uh, just to let them know that we're aware of it if they haven't called us. And uh, then we uh, start working with them from that point on. We'll respond to the hospital if it's needed uh, to meet with family members. It just depends on the dynamics behind it because we have a great relationship uh, with uh, all the peer support teams who are in the, the uh, uh, employee assistance units and a lot of the agencies as well uh, in uh, helping them with uh, uh, these type of situations. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, with the number of line of duty deaths that we have had in Arizona, a couple of agencies have become very experienced uh, with. Uh, uh, the procedures behind uh, the line of duty uh, death uh, uh, that we make contact with. But once we have that opportunity, we know the first couple weeks are very, very busy. So we just uh, uh, will we'll attend, uh, you know, the funeral services. We'll usually go to uh, uh, and uh, just uh, kind of leave a sympathy card uh, with the family members uh, with uh, a couple of our business cards in them so they can reach out to us or we'll let them know that after things calm down after uh, two or three weeks, maybe a month, that we'll reach out to them. And usually we'll try and send one of our surviving spouses uh, uh, to meet with the spouse. And then if we have one of our parents available, we'll send them as well. Uh, to meet with uh, the parents, and I think that's why I, I am so involved with COPS is because it's broken down where the groups meet with each other. Uh, I mean, the, the, the spouses get to meet with spouses. Uh, we break the kids into the groups, the parents. Uh, I mean, it's all broken down in there because everybody deals with grief in different manners, and that's what we try to explain to them. And, you know, this first year is after, you know, you get through the funeral and, uh, uh, you know, all that. It's just, it's a whirlwind and, you know, there's not a lot that, uh, you know, uh, they remember. And at one point with them, we start and we meet with them uh, to see what their needs are, if there's any other ways that we can help them. And that's when we first introduce them and talk to them about attending National Police Week and the Arizona State Memorial as well. And we, you know, just we kind of go over that. Uh, a lot of them don't even remember when we get back there that we even had that time together, which is understandable when you're going through the grief process. But uh, we'll start working with them uh, through, uh, you know, what to expect uh, as, as we arrive at uh, National Police Week. Uh, National Police Week is held in Washington, D.C. Uh, every year from uh, May 11th through May 17th. And that's when the officer's name is officially uh, uh, placed on the uh, law enforcement memorial wall, and they they are honored at the on the Southland lawn of the state capitol, as well. Uh, but uh, cops is more or less. There's three or four different agencies that. Uh, kind of oversee uh, the National Police Week. It's, it's the concerns of police survivors, the Fraternal Order of Police, the National Law Enforcement Memorial, and uh, you know the, the FBI is back there as well. Uh, and the concerns of police survivors are the primary organization that gets all the family members and the surviving coworkers uh, back there. For Like for me, I'm a, considered a surviving coworker because I've lost two uh, partners and two friends, plus the other 19 officers that have been killed throughout the DPS's history. Uh, and... Uh, 
So uh, we start working with them, and usually in in February, uh, late February, we try and host. Uh, once uh, things start getting going, uh, we host an annual uh, orientation for all the, the agencies and the uh, family members and the liaison officers that are working with the families that the agencies supply uh, to talk about Police Week, what they should expect, how to plan, how to schedule the, to get back there, make sure that they're, uh, they answer any questions once they get their registration notices because part of our role is also is to gather the names of all the family members from those agencies and send them back to our national office to where they can get put into our database so that they can be kept up to date on everything going on uh, throughout uh, you know that that cops provides for these families and once we get as we get closer, we continue to work with them, and then uh, the, the large majority of our board will travel back to D.C. every year, and we meet our families and when they come in, um, and uh, and we truly mean we want to honor them when they're back there. I mean, when they get to the airport, we encourage everybody to fly in to to Reagan National. And on the 11th and 12th, those are the two official, uh, what they call official arrival dates, Honor Guard members from all over the nation and now the world, because the Canadian Mounties come over, a lot of the Bobbies come over from uh, England and New Zealand. Uh, A couple years ago, we had some New Zealand folks in town. But they uh, uh, are at... Reagan National, and they actually go down and greet every one of our family members when they come off the the gateway, and then you know make sure that uh, they get all their luggage, they carry their luggage for them, they take them down to the baggage claim area, and they make sure they get on the transportation to the necessary uh, whatever hotel they're going to be placed in, because uh, Cops provides uh, host hotels for all of our members that go back there. And, uh, you know, that's when the week begins. And uh, then on the 13th, every year on the 13th uh, in the evening, as what they call the candlelight vigil, and that's where the National Law Enforcement Memorial Board uh, reads the names of uh, all the uh, current year uh, officers killed in the line of duty, plus any historical names. On the average, they usually... uh, put anywhere from 200 to 350 names on the wall every year because they're constantly doing research to find uh, law enforcement officers that have been killed in the line of duty throughout the history of the United States. So they're constantly going on. I think last year when we were there in October, there was one from 1878 or something like that that they had found. and it's just it's it's just a beautiful event. It's now held, used to be held at the actual memorial itself, but they moved it over into the memorial lawn area uh, just because it's gotten so large. Yeah, On the was, average, they have it. Go ahead. Brent. No, no. I was going to say I was going to ask you if they had moved it back to the uh, if they had moved it back to the actual memorial because it, they were doing some work around the memorial, so they moved it to the memorial lawns. And um, it was beautiful there with the Capitol in the background, the the recently refurbished dome the last time I was there in 2017. And uh, I I wasn't sure if they had kept it there or not because after COVID it had been virtual or not at all. And, you know, I know they had it last October, so... No, uh, the the plan is to keep it there, just because of with the new uh, museum and everything at the uh, at the actual memorial itself. There's just not the room to, to host the capacity of the crowd. I think in October, of course, uh, we we covered two years worth of uh, officers that uh, were uh, you know added to the wall. Uh, but on the average, there's anywhere from five. To, I think I've seen crowds of up to ten thousand that because uh, it's a public event that attend on the mall there, and so there's just uh, they feel there's just no way they can ever get it ever back over at the actual memorial site itself uh, uh, because of the number of uh, uh, people, especially now uh, with that. So that takes place on the 13th, and uh, it's just a beautiful ceremony as they read their names and honor the uh, the survivors that are there. And then on the 14th, uh, COPS has seminars going on for coworkers 
and for family members. They're all broken down into different groups, like one of them that I read, uh, that, that I lead and facilitate myself is Fathers of Accidental Deaths, and now we've added medical. Uh, I work with those fathers to help them start their process, as we call their road to hope, that there is hope that you can get better. Will the grief ever go away? Uh, you'll always have that, 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 that sorrow and those remembrance, but you can move on in life. And that's what we start talking about is how they prepare and get through this. I think my hardest one is when I'm working with the fathers that lost a daughter and listening to their stories that some of them they'll never get to see or have grandchildren. Or they'll never get to see them uh, get married and walk them down the aisle. Uh, I mean, you just hear those stories of what they're, they're, they, the loss that they feel themselves. And we try and help them and give them guidance on how to get through that. And they have topics for everything. And that occurs on the 14th. Uh, and the same thing for coworkers. They have coworkers on how to deal with the stresses of losing an officer or losing a partner. And, uh, you know, we usually have about 120 support staff members back there that are working with not only our mental health providers, but uh, in the groups themselves. And then on the fifth, the, the 15th is the actual uh, memorial on the South Lawn, where uh, typically, if the president's available, he will speak at that event, and uh, the, uh, the family members uh, get to put a, uh, a carnation in uh, what we call the national wreath. And then after that, uh, they receive their uh, medals of honor from the Fraternal Order of Police who host that event. And then the wreath is taken over to the memorial where the Honor Guard members then again, uh, uh, each uh, team uh, takes a time period and it's uh, at guard at the memorial uh, itself for 24 hours. And uh, then it's eventually moved back over to uh, the host hotel, which is uh, Hilton Alexandria there in Alexandria, Virginia. And then on the 16th, again, we start having more seminars, and it's more the recovery. After, it's more talking about uh, focused on moving forward in, in, in your life and career. They have, you know, how to get involved with relationships and for for parents. Uh, you know, they, they have topics for them and how they can help uh, the new families and things of that sort. And that goes on. And then we end that evening with a, what we call, it used to be called the picnic in the park because it used to, we used to go to a park, but now it's an actual uh, themed event that's held in a host hotel where we just come together for a big barbecue. There's all kinds of games. It's a time to kind of, we want to try and send them back home in an up feeling instead of the, the, you know, the, the sadness that goes on just when you're remembering the loss of your fellows. So we try and have those. We have games for everybody. Uh, they have balancing houses. Uh, a couple of the motorcycle groups, uh, law enforcement motorcycle groups provide motorcycle rides for kids and anybody that wants them. They have face painting, tattoo, uh, you know, Build-A-Bears, all that type of stuff goes on. So we kind of leave them in and up uh, for their trip home on the 17th. And then yeah. we all go home on the 17th. Yeah, I uh, I always equated the, the whole police week process as, as similar to what you take uh, people through when you do a critical incident stressor briefing, and that's really inside baseball stuff. But you know, you you kind of go through everything and you, you start to help people recover, and then you try to send them away from the interaction on a high note. And it always struck me that that was not by accident that uh, the cops uh, week and the seminars were set up much the same way as, as us that have done critical incident stress debriefings over the years. Uh, kind of, it's kind of the same idea and I, that's probably good for the survivors, obviously. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we see survivors, you know, leave there just in much higher spirits when they get there because of some of the, the information that's provided to them. But they also, because there's a lot of returning survivors that go back every year as well, and they get to meet some of the returning survivors in uh, their particular uh, time frame of recovery. I mean, some of them may be the second year. Some of them are five years out. Some of them, I mean, going back as long as I have for, you know, 20 plus years. Uh, 
so they get to see and hear that there can be, uh, I always hate the term, but a new normal for them because they'll always have those memories of their loved one. Right. Those never go away. Yeah, you know, I, I actually had made a note here to mention how many returning survivors come back. I, I'm glad you you mentioned it because I always thought, again, that no matter what work we did in the seminars, and I, I will tell the audience that I, I've had the opportunity to be one of the peers assigned to your uh, your Fathers of Accidental Death seminars and have um, been, been in a couple of those with you over the years. But uh, that, you know, the, the information we give them is is good and what they get from meeting other survivors from previous years that are a little bit further down the road in their journey and seeing the end results of that, um, I, I think those two things put together create a very powerful experience for the for the survivors uh, and um, really is is extremely helpful in their in their recovery and and oh, finding absolutely. that absolutely. finding that new normal. Yeah. It, it absolutely is, uh, and then once once they get back, though, uh, the local chapters continue to stay in contact with all of them. I mean, like our Arizona chapter, uh, we have events throughout the year for them to come together and and, and get to meet, uh, meet with each other uh, again uh, throughout the year. Uh, every March, uh, uh, the first Sunday of every March, we host a 5K down at uh, Wesley Bolin Plaza, where the uh, the actual Arizona Memorial is at. And uh, we, you know, uh, we started it back up again this year. I think we had about 400 participants. Uh, the year before COVID started, uh, we were right at just a little over a thousand participants. But it's again, uh, you know, the agencies come out. We have citizens come out to support it. It's just another tremendous event for them to get together and for uh, our citizens to show support to the surviving families as well. Uh, as well. Um, and we usually always try and have a, an annual holiday party, which is the first Saturday of, uh, uh, of December. Um, at, uh, in the, the last couple years, it's been at uh, what's known as the main event here in Arizona, but uh, I, uh, this year we're moving it. We're still in the progress of picking the location and finalizing the location, but uh, I think it's going to be more of the theme of a cowboy Christmas this year because we're looking right. at hosting at a big event here called uh, Rawhide here in Arizona or here in the Phoenix area. So, uh, uh, And then uh, we, we've started programs where now we travel the state and we have uh, uh, coffee with cops, with the concerns of police survivors, several board members will travel the state and just, you know, meet with some of our survivors and see what their needs are and, you know, uh, talk to them more about how they can get involved if they want to. And, uh, you know, but we're, we're always staying in contact with them to try and make sure uh, that, uh, you know, they're getting what they need. And uh, I think that's what I like about the concerns of police survivors so much too, is, uh, you know, we will be with them as long as they want them. I mean, we'll be with them the rest of their lives and support them any way we possibly can. But it's their journey, and uh, we just want to be there if they have the needs or need to reach out uh, if they're having some downtime. All right. It uh, looks like uh, we have a quick question from a listener. So uh... Okay. Good morning. This is Lori. Uh, how many law enforcement officers are going back to the memorial this year from Arizona? For Arizona, we're taking back, uh, I, I don't know the total number of officers yet, but between family members and, co and uh, co-workers, we're taking back 311 uh, uh, family members and uh, co-workers are going back to, uh, from Arizona, from Arizona. It's the largest group we've ever had. Very good. And uh, I'm with, uh, I'm a CSO with TPD. We've uh -huh. not uh, officially lost anyone. They some have been categorized, but we're taking four from uh, Tucson Police Officers Association. Well, uh, you know that's great to hear. <laughs> so, uh, very good. Love love the work that you guys are doing. All right, thank you very much for calling, Lori. Uh, we appreciate you joining the show. 
uh, uh, Jim, we only have a couple minutes left, and I have so much okay. more to talk to you about. But uh, <laughs> one, one other thing I want to get out quickly is if anybody that's listening wants to help cops, uh, how can they, how can they uh, uh, help cops in their, in their mission? Well, I tell you, the best way they can help us is just through uh, support. Uh, they can go to our website if they want to make donations at uh, it's COPS Arizona spilled out dot org, and uh, there's a donation link there. Uh, they can download. We now have an Arizona app that they can download and kind of follow our events. But probably our biggest fundraiser, they really want to support us, is to get one of the fallen officers or honoring fallen officers license plates. That's how we're able to uh, make sure that we can support our survivors because, as you know, uh, Rich, that uh, COPS offers retreats for all of our different groups throughout the year, uh, the spouses' uh, retreats, the kids retreats uh parents uh co-workers uh we have retreats for them where and those are all free but it, there's a cost to get back there so we use those funds to pay for uh our surviving uh, families and co-workers airfares to get back to those retreats so they continue uh to get the resources they need to recover from mm-hmm. so uh the honoring fallen officers place is probably one of the best ways or come out and participate in one of our events such as the uh the 5k that's probably our second largest uh, fundraiser that we have great now i do recall a couple a few years ago there was a a, a kind of a contest or a or a a survey of people involved with cops about redesigning the fallen officer plate uh is that going to happen or or is the current design going to stay no we're we're in the process we had one design that we all picked but uh Unfortunately, ADOT awarded a similar one to uh, another uh, organization. So, uh, in fact, I just got the newest designs uh, uh, sent to me yesterday from our uh, uh, individual that creates them for us. And uh, so we'll be taking a vote on which one to go with. But we are planning on doing a redesign of the license plate. Uh, We've heard that it's kind of time, and uh, we're we're just looking at a couple different themes. Uh, We've looked at some of the other states and what they have and uh so uh we'll uh hopefully here in the next uh couple months we'll be announcing that we have a new plate out there available as well well i, I know which design i voted for and then i did see it so i do think uh that's uh, the one yeah, that uh, i voted for <laughs> yeah unfortunately uh we we got beat out on that one so, so well jim we got to wrap it up we didn't even get to talk All to right. e take care and shop local and See you next time. Stay safe.